Starting at 4.30, we're going to have food trucks here. Now, do you all have that um, graphic for up there? We're going to have food trucks from 4.30 to 8.30. There you go. We're going to have gourmet food, good food. We, have te- we took a 1,000 door knockers out to the neighborhoods around us and invited them to come Saturday night. And so from 4.30 to 8.30, uh, with the service in between, um, we're going to be uh, eating we have found that if you feed them, they will come. That's what we have found. And so now for the, at the end of it, there's gourmet ice cream. There's actually even an ice cream truck, but a really fancy one, gourmet ice cream. Now that'll be this Saturday night, 4.30 to 8.30. There'll be picnic tables out there, uh, chairs, places for you to sit down and fellowship. And I hope you'll, you'll come and meet some of the neighbors and let them know that um, you're glad to meet them. Love on them in the name of the Lord. Because hopefully there'll be a lot of visitors who have never come, but they will come to eat. Okay? And then the, the other message, finding membership. If you would like to be a member of Turning Point Church, you feel like God is speaking to you and adding you to be a part of our church family, then Saturday night at 6 o'clock, we're doing finding membership. A lot of things going on here Saturday night, this Saturday night. So Saturday night, six o'clock, you come go through that finding membership class one time, one hour, and then you're done. And you can ask any questions you want about our vision, what we're about, what we believe, where we're headed, and they will tell you. And so it'll, it'll clear the fog for you. Okay. So Saturday night at six, finding membership, 4.30 to 8.30, food. And Sunday the gifts of the spirit. And that is going to be at the 11 o'clock at the 11 o'clock. <sighs> All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you tonight for the word of God. And we pray that Lord, you will speak to us tonight and help us to understand the ways of God. That we might be at rest with you, at peace with you, comfortable in our Christian skin, And we thank you for it, Lord, tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tell your neighbor God is good all the time, and you can be seated. God bless you. Now, uh, we've been going through Ecclesiastes a chapter a week. Ecclesiastes is a thinking book. It's a thinker book. It's from the greatest mind of Solomon's time, and that was Solomon. And yet it's from a dark period in his life. He went through a valley. He went through a valley of his own making. He went through a valley because he departed from God and went off into um, idolatry, marriage to tons of different pagan women who didn't share his faith. And so he ended up in a real dark place. He reaped what he sowed. And it is from that dark place where he's kind of finding his way back that he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're going to, we, I hear in him, and you're going to hear it too, throughout the book, you hear anger, you hear disillusionment, you hear perplexity, you hear many questions. For at least the larger part of the first half to two-thirds of the book, he's looking at life through an under-the-sun perspective. And that means life without God. He is not looking at life through the lens of the promises of God. He's not looking at life with any vertical 
view or any vertical perspective. He's not seeing it this way. If you want to keep your sanity, you've got to look at life from a vertical perspective. That God's in charge, God redeems, and God works everything together for the good. If you're only looking at it this way, you're going to slip into the place where he went, which was depression, oppression, anger, disillusionment, and so on and so forth. Now, chapter 9, I call it the mighty man, but I could have called it the mightiest man. And so let's take a look at this. Last time we closed with Solomon advising that we leave the things we don't understand with God and trust that he makes all things beautiful in its time. Do you believe that? Amen. Now, as is his want, Solomon again points out in chapter 9 that life is filled with seeming inequities. How many of you ever noticed that? Unfairnesses, inequities. Uh, Life's not fair is really one of the mantras in Ecclesiastes. Life is just not fair. Now, let's start out at verses 1 through 2. Here's what he writes. This too, I carefully explored. And by the way, this is the New Living Translation. I started out in the New Living because it makes easier sense for all of us to get. So if you're reading a New King James or a King James or a New American Standard, this is not what you're seeing. But it's, it's accurate. Now, this too I carefully explored, that even though the actions of godly and wise people are in God's hands, no one knows whether God will show them favor. The same destiny ultimately awaits everyone. Whether righteous or wicked, good or bad, ceremonially clean or unclean, religious or irreligious, good people receive the same treatment as sinners. And people who make promises to God are treated like people who don't make promises to God. All right, now let's let's follow his thoughts. Keep in mind that the preacher, capital P, another name for him in this book, the preacher, is again looking at life through the lens of his own natural under-the-sun mind. Can you hear it? He's not looking at these things. What he just said, what I just read, are not the words of a man of faith. They are the words of somebody looking at life this way, through the natural mind. And so his conclusions are the very ones that so many of us come to when we are looking at things through our natural mind. Now, keep in mind this. The Bible says that you and I, without God's help, don't see things accurately. Right? Why? Because we have a fallen nature. And even though we're saved, our mind still needs to be renewed. We need to erase and replace many of the old thinking patterns. And without divine revelation, which is the Word of God, we don't see life the way it really is. We see the life through skewed lenses. Let me give you a verse. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is death. So you and I can look at something and go, well, well that's what I want to go do. That's the way I want to live. That's the decision I want to make. And it seems right. It looks right. It feels right. I come to the conclusion that it is right, but lo and behold, it leads me into a sinful action that leads to death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So that's why I'm always harping on you as our congregation and myself 
as your pastor, stay in the word of God, stay in the word of God. Because every time you open up that word, you see things the way they are, not the way you are. You get it? So he's looking at things the way, and he's seeing things the way he is, not the way God sees them. So we tend to think that if you're a good person, here's the conclusion we come to when we see uh, what he talked about in the first couple of verses. We tend to think that if you're a good person and you do your best to live a good life and you're good to others, then you will receive special treatment from God. Put another way, you deserve special treatment from God if you are a good person. Somehow good things are going to happen to you because you're, you're a good person and doing good things for others. So good things are going to happen to you. And when they don't, then we are confused. And we say this, how could God allow such a bad thing to happen to such a good person? Where's the payback for living a good life? And here goes our, our natural mind thinking, where's the payback for living a good life? Where's fairness with God? And we utter these words, this isn't fair. When we do that, we're not seeing things through the lens of the Bible. We're seeing things through the lens of the natural mind. And to make matters even worse, we observe the wicked, those who don't honor God, those who curse his name, who never darken the door of church, who live sinful lifestyles. And we observe these very same people prospering. And we say, what's going on here? Because they're not good, yet it looks like they're receiving good from God. And then I am good, and all I have is trouble. So where is the fairness here? And this is what Solomon is stumbling over. Because when you see the wicked prospering folks, that really, really doesn't make sense. And you want to look up and say, well, is this what I get for walking with you? I have trouble all day. And those folks who, oh, I mean, what's wrong here if we're not careful? These things can bring us to the conclusion that it doesn't really pay to live a righteous life. And listen to me carefully. Do you know how many people walk away from God because of this? They say, I know that that person was a good person. They did only good things. And how in the world could God let them die of cancer at 30? And I know that guy over there has lived a wicked life, has never done a right thing in his life. And he's 85 going on 86 and he's laughing all day every day. What is going on here? Why didn't God vaporize him and let the good Christian live to 85? They look at that and they say, they say either God's not fair or God's not. They do what they want to do, the wicked do. They go on laughing, having fun, reaping no consequences. This is why Solomon says in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 9, Quote, it seems so tragic that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. That is why people are not more careful to be good. Because they say, what good does it do me to be good? Because I'm good and I experience trouble, but they're not good and they don't experience trouble. So what good does it do me to be good? How many of you ever had just a moment of experience like this in your, the theater of your mind? Oh, look at everybody here. Almost everybody. Well, if you haven't, hang on, you will. Because, listen, life's not fair. But God is good. Can we say that together? Life's not fair. But God is good. 
all the time. Thank you, church. And see, that's the, the, the vertical view of the believer. But that's not the way Solomon's looking at it right now. He's looking at it this way. And then he goes on. This is the continuation of the verse. Instead, they choose their own mad course, for they have no hope. There is nothing ahead but death anyway. I'm going to die anyway, so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die. There's no real reward for being good, so why should I be good? So I'm just going to go on a mad, insane, immoral course. And so he's leading us through the thought patterns of the person who does not have a vertical perspective, who's not looking towards God. Now, verse 4, there's only hope for the living, this person says. There's only hope for the living So it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. I like that. Better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Now, if you have thought these things, life's not fair. Why should I go to church? Why should I seek God? Why should I read the Bible? When when I have so many troubles... And all around me, at work and other places, I see people not living for God, and it seems like they're enjoying life. Watch it. Because you're not seeing what's going on behind closed doors. And you're not there a lot of time when their payday comes. That's why it says, don't envy the sinner, but live in the fear of the Lord all day long, for you will always have a hope if you live in the fear of the Lord. But don't let your heart envy sinners. It's a mistake because you're not there when consequences fall. You're not there when they are in some kind of torture of mind or soul behind closed doors. You're only seeing what they show you out in the open. It is an irrefutable law that sin brings death and sin brings sorrow and sin brings subtraction. There is no other way around it. But there is a, a song, another person that wrote some of the Psalms whose name was Asaph. And in Psalm 73, Asaph is struggling with this same issue. Why do the wicked prosper? Why am I punished all day if I'm righteous? And I can't handle this. So let's look at what he says. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. Then verse 2, he goes autobiographical on us. And he says, but as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, and I was almost gone. He said, I almost lost my faith. Verse 3. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. So here he is. He's envying the wicked. What a trap. Verse 4. They seem to live such painless lives. Here's the way it looks to me when I'm looking this way. They live painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. Is that true? No. So he was deceived, wasn't he? But this is what he was experiencing in his mind. Verse 6, they wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats, I like that. That's the New Living Translation. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. Verse 8, they scoff. And they only say evil things. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens. They boast against God. And their words strut throughout the earth. He's talking about proud, arrogant, godless words. They travel the earth. Verse 10. And so the people are dismayed and confused. 
drinking in all their words. Nobody understands how they get away with this. Verse 11, and here's what they say, the wicked. What does God know? What does God know? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Now that's the utterance of a fool. But this is the utterance of the wicked. This is the utterance of the atheist. There's no God up there who watches everything. So what is he lacking here, which is the beginning of all wisdom? The fear of the Lord. There's no fear of the Lord with these people that Asaph is observing. There's no fear of the Lord. None. And the fear of the Lord is the very beginning of wisdom. You have no wisdom until you at least have a healthy, reverential fear of the Lord. Then does the Most High even know what's happening? Rhetorical question? No, he doesn't even know. Verse 12, look at these wicked people, says Asaph. Enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. And then verse 13, here he goes, pity party. I hear the violin coming. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? It's a country song. (laughs) Okay. Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? Why have I been trying to follow God? What good has it done me when these people are having all the fun? Verse 14, what happens to me? Here, the Western song continues. I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. (laughs) That is a great Western song. (laughs) Nothing but trouble. (laughs) All day long. Every morning brings me pain. Pity party. Now, verse 15. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. Now look at verse 16. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. Why does God allow them to go on? Why doesn't he stop them? How many of you are amazed that there's some people still walking earth that have not been vaporized by God? How many of you, if you were God, would have done vaporize them? Right? Right. I can think of a few people that I know the world would be a lot better off without them because they're only doing damage every single day to, a, to the world. But God lets them continue. God lets them go on. And he's God, I'm trying to understand why God just sits there. And he said, it's a difficult intellectual task. Look what happened in verse 17. Until he decided to go in the house of prayer. Now what happened? His perspective went from here to here. Because he took his trouble this way instead of dealing with it only this way. He took it to God. He says in verse 17, Then I went into your sanctuary, picture of going into prayer. Oh God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Now here's the truth about the wicked. Here it is, verse 18. Truly you put them on a slippery path. And you send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. What's he saying? Their day is coming. Why do they live so long? Might it be the mercy of God, knowing that once they die, it's too late, and his mercy is so much stronger than ours? So he says, here's the truth. They're in a slippery place. They're going to go over the cliff into destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed the moment they die, completely swept away by terrors, Notice, this is the person that had no terror when they were alive. 
They had no terror, no fear. They were laughing. They were saying God doesn't see. But now look where they are once they die. Completely swept away by terror. (gasps) He's there. Oh, no. Now he's feeling terrible about the way he's been feeling and the way he's been copping an attitude towards God. Look at verse 20. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. (laughs) Psalms 2 says, He that sits in the heavens shall laugh at the wicked. Here he is feeling bad. Verse 21. Then I realized that my heart was bitter. And I was all torn up inside. Verse 22, I was so foolish, so ignorant, so stupid, so unseeing. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you, God. The way I was going off on you and and calling you unfair. Yet I still belong to you. Even though, Lord, I had a terrible attitude and almost lost my faith, yet you did not let me go. You didn't let me go. You hold my right hand. Verse 24, you're going to guide me with your counsel the rest of my days on earth. And you're going to lead me to a glorious destiny. Now, the psalm starts good, ends good, and it's sandwiched in between with some real negative stuff. But isn't it a lesson? The wicked aren't getting away with anything. Not anything. And when their day comes, it comes, and it's a horrible day. We're going to look at that more in just a moment. Verse 25, he ends it. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. That's a good way to end right there. I desire you more than... Can we just lift our hands and say, Lord, I desire you more than anything on earth? Just take a worship moment here. Lord, I desire you more than anything on earth. I desire you, Lord. Don't you sense his presence when you tell him that? Thank you, Lord. Give the Lord a hand of praise. He is good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So this struggle with the inequities and the unfairness of life are common to every one of us. But though life's not fair, God is good. We say it together again. Life's not fair, but God is good all the time. Now, next, he's he's shifting gears a little bit. Solomon continues with his gloomy outlook as he considers the finality of death. Verses 5 through 6. The living at least know they will die, but the dead don't know anything. They have no further reward, nor are they remembered. Now, what perspective is he looking at through here? What lens? Because is it true that there's no reward? No. This is a depressed man talking. And they're not remembered either. So he's, he's negative again. Whatever they did in their lifetime, loving, hating, envying, it's all long gone. They no longer play a part in anything here on earth. Checked out, gone. Sayonara, adios, hasta la vista, never to return. Now, all of this is true apart from the reality of an afterlife. If you stop and think about it, this is what any atheist believes. I've read them and I've listened to them. I've been studying atheists a little bit uh, lately because I want to know what they're saying because I want to know how to answer them. And they're all on this. Some of the heroes of the atheist movement, they're all on this, you know, when we die, you die. That's it. 
One of them actually led his uh, deceived listeners into a little meditation thing where they, he said, imagine that you're just gone and there's nothing else. And they all sat there for a minute and did it. And I didn't do it. I found it a horrific, horrible thought that this glorious creation of man just ends and there's nothing else. And it's a lie. When you're gone, you're gone. Is that true? No, it's not true. To the dust you return from whence you came. That's what they believe, but it's not what the Bible says. Not what Jesus said. No future hope. No future reward. No future anything. Now, if I really believed that, I would understand going crazy. Say, I'm going to do whatever I want to do because once you're dead, you're dead. There's no judgment, no God, no answering for sin, no anything. But this is Solomon apart from faith. And we will see him later on in the book confess otherwise. This is when he's blue. This is when he's down. This is when uh, he, he's giving a perspective that is, that is not this way, vertical. Now, we who know Scripture and love the Lord know that this grim assessment is absent any faith in the promises of God. You know, the Bible shouts from cover to cover of an eternal hereafter where the righteous are going to enter into his reward and the wicked will enter a devil's hell. Now, I can't wrap my mind around either of those. Eternity, my mind short circuits when I try to think of anything eternal. Never-ending bliss, never-ending hell. My, my thought is, what will I do forever? Well, God's going to have us at work. God's going to have all kinds of projects for the redeemed. But the thought of everlasting hell, I can't wrap my mind around it, but here's here's the deal. I receive it, I accept it as true because the Bible says it is, and my Savior said it was so. And he came from there to here, from heaven to here, and knows better than anyone else what's really out there. And Jesus said there's a heaven and there is a hell. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 25 for those of us who know him. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will, uh, shall set you over much. Enter the joy of your Lord. That's eternity and that's eternal reward. Okay? Then Jesus said, and I quote this at every funeral I preside over. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. He said... There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? In other words, he's saying, I'm not a liar. He said, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that, we'll, that you will always be with me where I am. That's a promise of eternity with the name above every name, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, Christ Jesus. So there's the promise. So in those two passages alone, you got eternal reward and eternity with him. So it's not that when you die, it all stops. When you die, the journey has just begun. Now, here's the warning of hell. Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it, that's Christ. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. No one wanted to face him. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. 
And the books were open, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done. Now they're having to answer for their sins because those sins were not washed away by the only thing that can wash them away, and that's the blood. So now they're having to answer for every work they did, every sin they committed. And he's looking for their name in this book. Verse 13, the sea gave up its dead. All those who had died in the ocean, all those who had died in the sea, and were down at the bottom, their, their, their bodies are resurrected and brought before Christ. Death and the grave gave up their dead. Those who have died and their souls have gone into um, a sort of an, a, a, essentially a waiting room, a spiritual waiting room, uh, Hades. And when the time for the judgment comes, Hades spews up the souls of those who have died without Christ that are in it. And they were all judged according to their deeds. To me, these are the most somber passages in the Bible. These right here. Because this is it. This is the end for those who rejected John 3.16. Okay? They were all judged according to their deeds. And what happened? Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. You died once when you died, but then you're going to die again When you go there, it's a type of death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Tell me of a a more sober passage. There's not one. Not one that I know of. That's it. Those that weren't found in the book of life were thrown in the lake of fire. There's nobody and no thing in the lake of fire right now. It's utterly empty. The burning lake of fire is empty. It awaits the great white throne judgment. See, Jeff, you really believe that? Well, of course I believe that. And, and this, is, this is the red part of the Bible. You know, this is the book of Revelation. Jesus is revealing this. John is seeing this. He's being told these things by Jesus. It's so somber. We can't wrap our minds around it. But you better know it's true. You better know it's true. If you really believe that's true, then you will share Jesus with your loved ones. Okay? Jesus encouraged us to live in a way that prepares us for eternity. He said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. He's not saying be financially irresponsible. He's not saying don't have a 401k. He's just saying don't put all of your eggs in the basket of material stuff. Where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal like the IRS. I'm sorry. But I heard they're looking at getting our 401k next. You got to pay off that big debt somehow. But Jesus said, store yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal it. There is a treasure that can't be stolen and it is the treasure that you store up in heaven in your walk with God. You can't take anything with you, but you can send it ahead of you. Okay? Now, next, the preacher again encourages his readers to enjoy the blessings God has given. This is what he returns to over and over again. Verses 7 through 10. Here's what he says. Go eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white. In other words, live a clean life. Always anoint your head with oil. 
Walk with God. When I think of head anointed with oil, I think of the anointing of the Spirit, of walking with God. So live a clean life and walk with God. Be an anointed person. Verse 9, enjoy life with your wife. A happy wife means a happy life. Come on, man. We're going to try that again. A happy wife means a happy life. Some of you men are intimidated to even say that here tonight. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All of your sorry, meaningless days. I threw that in. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Enjoy what God has given you. Verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. None of that is there. In short, enjoy what God has given you and have a good work ethic. Work good. Be a good worker. I personally believe that good work brings a a, a kind of pride that is good. We should all be proud of the job we do. We should all work hard. And we should do our work as unto the Lord and not as unto men, for we serve the Lord Christ. Jesus has redeemed our labor. So we don't labor in vain as long as we give him our labor and labor as unto him. Okay, labor has been redeemed. So have a good work ethic. Enjoy what God's given to you. And and I hear this in there. Don't simply be alive, but live. Let me put it another way. Don't die till you're dead. There's a lot of people walking around. They're dead. How's it going? Oh, it's going all right, brother. (laughs) What's the matter? Man, they'll just pour out a million different problems to you. And you see, they never laugh. They never joke. They never have fun. They never go have fellowship. They're dead before they have died. And if you're a Christian acting that way and you go to a restaurant after being in church here, don't tell them you were here. <laughs> Get out there, go to a restaurant and say, hey, hallelujah, I'm just so happy to be alive. Jesus is good. I'm from Turning Point Church. <laughs> All right? Because that's the greatest testimony there is. Your face is God's greatest billboard. Okay? And it's a neon sign. If you're always walking around looking sour and dour and down and blue and serious and somber, who wants that? People say, if that's what God did to you. (laughs) Excuse me if I pass that on by. But if you've got a smile on your face and there's joy in your life, there's no greater magnet to Jesus than that. So have the joy of the Lord. That's your strength. Don't die till you're dead. Now, verses 11 and 12, he said, I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Now, this one we need to look at. This is going to help you. You see, he has that word chance. Time and chance happen to them all. Now, if you're not careful, you'll think he's talking about fate. But listen to me. There is no fate. There's no such thing as fate. That's made up. That's an invention of men. Because God is providential over his universe. Chance here means unforeseen, unexpected events. 
So let's just fix that verse. Like, time and unforeseen events happen to us all. And we've all seen this in life, in ourselves and with others. A person may experience many successes only to have an unforeseen event. Suddenly, there is a tragedy. Or suddenly, there is a setback. Out of nowhere. And when that happens, you are stopped, or others that you've watched have been stopped in their tracks. Time and unforeseen events happens to us all. So Solomon is again recognizing the providence of God in ordering all circumstances. And here's what he's telling us, that success ultimately comes from his hand. No matter the level of your giftedness, because I've seen hugely gifted, talented, powerful people who could, it looked to me, take the world by the tail. But unforeseen events came along and nipped it in the bud and slowed them down or hindered them. And then I've seen people who, if you had asked me, are they going to rise to the top? I would have said, well, you know, I don't know. And I've seen these people inexplicably rise into positions of power and influence and success nobody could have guessed. And so you have to say, God and his providence are in charge of success. So, you know what this does? It brings us to our knees and we say, oh God, time is short, life is short. By your grace and mercy, I'm asking you in humility, give me success. Because it comes from you. It comes from you. And, and Lord, don't let an unforeseen circumstance take me out before I have done the will of God. Didn't Jesus say in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the Greek, it's from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. So I really do believe, and I've seen this in life, just myself, in my own observations, the unexpected rise to the top, and those I fully thought would, unforeseen things stop them, and and they're taken down, and never achieve what you thought they would. Success comes from God. Well, does that mean, Pastor Jeff, I shouldn't even try? Sure, you should try, but all the while have a humble heart before God and say, oh God, bless my way, bless my day, Uh, give me a clear path. Verse 12, moreover, nobody knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall, how? Unexpectedly upon them. That's chance, the unforeseen events. You got somebody cooking along in life and all of a sudden there there is an evil time. Think of the Jews as Hitler came into power. Think of them there in Germany. They were brilliant. They were professors. They were scientists. They were, they were successful. They had money. And all of a sudden, this darkness came upon Germany in the form of this man, this bitter, hateful, psychotic man. And somehow he was able to convince an entire nation, a civilized nation, an educated nation to follow him into the mouth of madness. 
And what did they do? They woke up one day like a, like a bird caught in a trap. Here comes the, the officers, the SS, to their houses. Come on, get on the train. We're, we're taking you to a better place because this and that and the other is going to happen to this neighborhood. So we're here to help you and to move you to a better place. And they loaded onto the train. One group after another after another to the tune of millions. And they're taken off to these concentration camps and put into the gas chambers. And it was just ghastly. It's just inconceivable. And yet... This verse, it's so true. And they're just an example. People are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. You don't know when your day is going to come. So what is the message? Always be ready to meet your God. Always be ready. You think an unexpected event couldn't happen in this country? You think that? Oh, I guarantee you it could. Here's what he's saying. We're all subject to the hand of God's providence, all of us. Unforeseen events and circumstances may find us tomorrow in an altogether different set of circumstances. We must learn to trust God's heart when we don't understand God's hand. As a pastor, I'm telling you, I deal with people all the time who just cooking along in life, and one day their whole life is changed. Their whole life is changed. Now, I know this is somber and serious, but, but this is the kind of thing I believe God wanted to communicate to us through Ecclesiastes. That is, listen, none of us have a guarantee of tomorrow. What did James say? Go to now, you who say, today or tomorrow we're going to go into such and such a city and buy and sell and get gain. When you know not what tomorrow brings. For what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. And and he's talking to believers. So, can we just say, Lord, if you will. You know, have you ever watched Hal Lindsey? I I watch Hal Lindsey. Uh, I like his little show there on on, uh, TBN, his prophecy show. And he always ends it with, I'll see you next time if the Lord wills. I like that. I'll see you next time if the Lord wills. I know what he's thinking. We might all be raptured by the next time. Who knows what will happen by the next time. So he says, so I can start saying to you on Wednesday night, see you this weekend, Lord willing. And that would be a very biblical thing to say. Okay? Now next, Solomon points out that wisdom is superior to folly. We're coming to the close of the chapter. This wisdom I have also seen under the sun. And it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it. And a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Verse 15. Now there was found in that city one poor wise man. And he by his wisdom delivered the entire city. Yet not one person remembered that same poor man. Now the focus here is not only on the ability of one wise man to deliver a city by his wisdom. Can I just say something here? If you put in... Oh, help me, Jesus. Okay, I'm going to say it. If you put into the White House today a person totally committed to biblical principles, that person could play a huge part in turning this Titanic around. Okay? Oh, 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 a, a biblically wise man. How often 
we run for the wise man in times of trouble, but then once we're out of our trouble, we forget the wise man. I think this verse is just as much about how they forgot to thank him as it is about the fact that a wise man could deliver the whole city. You know, I can't tell you the value of one wise man in a church, one wise man in an organization, one wise man who understands the Bible, understands God's ways, understands how to make a wise decision. That one wise man can save you years of tears. So he's saying, how is it this wise man delivered the whole city and then nobody even went to thank him? And don't we also do this with the Lord Jesus himself, the ultimate wise man? In times of trouble, we seek out his counsel for our problems. Lord, I'm in jail. I don't know how I got here. I'm so sorry, Lord, for the things that I've done wrong. If you'll just get me out of this hell hole, I'll serve you all the days of my life. The next couple of days, a little miracle here and there and over there happens, and suddenly they're out. And are they in church that next week? Are they reading their Bible in two weeks? Are they praying a month later? No. Because God's nothing but a flat tire God to them. Oop, got a flat. Fill it up. Fix it. Then I'm gone. The wise person says, oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. For getting me out of this, and I am going to serve you all the days of my life. I meant it when I said it. Now, Solomon continues with pondering uh, wisdom. Then I said, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. You feel that way in America right now? Can I go back to that? Look at that bottom verse. The poor man's wisdom is despised. Do you feel that way in America right now? And his words are not heard? Then look at verse 17. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. So, David, walk with God. Now, he ought to hear that soft voice say, oh, I'm going to do it. That's the words of a wise man. But you can have a great orator, a magnetic personality, scream and shout tomfoolery, and it'll get you nowhere. It's the quiet words of the wise. And it's funny. The words of the wise people usually are quiet. They don't push themselves on you. This is what you ought to do. Follow him. Live for him. Listen to those words. He says, if you're a wise person whose counsel is sought, but whose company is later rejected, learn to trust God for your reward. And if you and I want to live lives of wisdom, We should place great capital and value on listening to the words of the wise. Though they are quiet, then to listen to the ignorant shouts of fools, and those abound. Okay? And then he closes with a great truth. This is the last verse. Wisdom, let's read it together. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Now, one act of sin is like a rock falling into a still glassy pond. The ripples spread out and touch the entire pond. So one sinner and his sin spreads out to affect many, many others. We don't live to ourselves. We don't die to ourselves. We all are surrounded by people that when we sin, the ripples spread out. And we we magnify the pain. And we accelerate the pain, and we bring pain to others when we sin. He's saying one sinner destroys much good. So it's, it's a great responsibility we have to walk with God. Amen? Can we stand together?
How many of you are enjoying Ecclesiastes? Isn't it good stuff? Amen. I love it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you right now for this wonderful book of wisdom, this book of warning, this book of lessons, this book of insight. We thank you for it. And Lord, remembering what we covered tonight, help us to never envy the sinner. Help us, Lord, to keep in mind that to walk with God is always worth it. And there is a reward both here and hereafter. Help us to keep in our minds, Lord, to listen to the words of the inconspicuous wise man over the shouts of a charismatic fool. Let's worship him just for a moment before we go tonight.